Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. How people see them, what they experience, what they have, what they do, and in the midst of all of it, they devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. It would be like they're foreclosing, and they did, on a poor widow, and while they're foreclosing, they're praying, oh Lord, would you just take care of the widow? That was their responsibility. All they had to do was not foreclose, or if they had to foreclose, let her stay in her house because she's a poor widow. In today's broadcast, we have part two of Pastor Sam's message, The Peril of Religion Without Relationship. We are now in Luke chapter 20, starting today in verse 20 and going through the end of this chapter. Our focus today will be the Pharisees testing Jesus regarding whether or not to pay taxes to Rome, the Sadducees questioning the resurrection, and a warning to his disciples about the scribes. So let's listen in. Verse 20, they sent spies who pretended to be righteous that they might seize on his words in order to deliver him to the power and the authority of the governor. They pretended to be righteous. Let me suggest to you that there is only one real righteousness. It's, it can only be obtained by having it imparted to us, imputed to us, that, that our righteousness is the righteousness that we have because of our faith in Christ. In fact, we sing it here. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So our righteousness is in Jesus and in Jesus alone. That's the only righteousness we have. So of course they were pretending to be righteous. Everyone was pretending at this point because the only righteousness they could have would come from Jesus. But this is why this is so tragic. These are the religious leaders pretending to be righteous instead of acknowledging they were unrighteous responding to John the Baptist, siding with God against themselves by repenting and being baptized. Well, here they are pretending to be righteous. And they come saying, teacher, we know you say and teach rightly and you do not show personal favoritism, but teach the way of God in truth. Take note of what they say. We know you say and teach rightly. That's true. You do not show personal favoritism. That's true. But teach the way of God in truth. That's true too. So what's the problem? Everything they're saying is true, but the reason for saying it is wrong. They're just flattering him. They're just buttering him up. Now, that's not going to work with Jesus. You know, it, it might work with me and uh, it might work with you. You know, such people come up and start saying all this stuff that makes you feel really good about yourself. And then all of a sudden you, you feel the knife, you know, and you're back and you're like, whoa, where did that come from? That's what's going on here. The only difference is Jesus couldn't be tricked or trapped. So we need to learn from it because this is one of the ways the enemy of our souls works against us. He'll just bring people to flatter us. Oh, you're so spiritual. You're so good. You're such a man or woman of prayer. You're this, you're that. And you're like, well, yeah, you know, I'm kind of humble. But yeah, I guess most of that's true. No, it's not. <laughs> it's not true. Our righteousness is in him or we would have none. Yes, we pray. But hey, do you know that people that don't know the Lord pray too? They just don't pray to the true and living God. So it isn't about what we do. It's why we're doing it and, and who we're connecting with as we do it. Well, in any case, here's their question. Is it lawful to pay taxes 
to Caesar or not. But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Why do you test me? Show me a denarius. Whose image and inscription does it have? And they answered and said, Caesar's. Again, we come up against this issue this time. Do we have to pay taxes to Caesar? We were kind of joking around after the service last week. And I joked and, and at this very service, you know, I had mentioned that, you know, no one will ever acknowledge they work for the IRS. There actually was a guy who works for the IRS and probably here again now. And, and uh, it was kind of cool because his wife, not him, first came up and said, hey, my husband works for the IRS, but she'll tell you or he'll tell you it's the Treasury Department. And so uh, I'm not busting him. I'm just saying, you know. That's what she said. And, but, but here's the irony. I was joking around with Rich Lang and some of the other guys in between the services. And, uh, and I, I mentioned that, you know, you could pretty much write a check to, and write anything on it and the IRS will cash it. And Rich said, I actually wrote my check to Caesar once and they cashed it. And so, so uh, they don't care. That's the issue, you see. But, but uh, the question here is, do we need to pay our taxes? And the answer is, of course. Whose inscription is on there? And by the way, I mean, we're not giving George Washington our dollars or, you know, I don't know who's on all our denominations. I don't keep track of that. But uh, the, the, uh, George is on the dollar, right? How did he get, how did he get the, the lowest one? I mean, he's like the father of the nation. They give him the dollar. I mean, give him, you know, the hundred, some big money or something. But anyway, he's just saying, is it lawful to pay taxes? Of course it's lawful. It's even right to do so. Paul will make that case in Romans 13. If you're still struggling or looking for a loophole, you're not going to find it. Render to God the things that are God's and unto Caesar the things that are Caesar. So, so the issue is he says, well, just show me the coin. Look at it. Whose inscription? Whose image? It's Caesar. So render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But render to God the things that are God's. Now I love this because you know as well as I that we were created in the image of God. And though the image was marred by sin, God immediately set out not just to redeem, but to restore the glory of his creation, the crown of his creation. And he does that by, by sending his son to suffer and die for our sin. All of the sacrifices from the first offered by Adam and Eve and, and then those offered by Abel. And you know Cain and Abel come and Abel's accepted. Every blood sacrifice, sacrifice points us to Jesus' sacrifice. And, and the communion we'll share in later today. Well, it, it points us again to the cross and the blood he shed. So he says, you know, perceiving their craftiness. I like that. Because he could always see through people. And by the way, that word craftiness is used of, of Satan tricking Eve that he was crafty and subtle in, in the way he approached her and dealt with her. But Jesus could see what she couldn't see. So why do you test me? Show me the denarius. Whose image? Whose inscription? And then he says it, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar, the things that are God's to God. And, and they could not catch him in his words in the presence of the people. And they marveled at his answer and kept silent. The bottom line issue here, the age abiding principle and render unto God the things that are God's is if we're not living for God, if we're not in a right relationship with God, we are missing the very purpose for which we've 
been created. That's why he says, offer your body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him. Offer the sacrifice of praise. What we offer to him is, is ourselves and all we have and, and every breath and, and every thought and we're to bring him into conformity and, and we're to, to speak and live to bring him glory. Well, next up, the Sadducees. These others have struck out. So the Sadducees say, hey, give us a chance. Now, these guys are experts in the law. They love Genesis through Deuteronomy. They have some serious issues, though, when it comes to the rest of Scripture. And they even have problems in Genesis through Deuteronomy because there are many things that they just don't believe. So we read some of the Sadducees who deny there is a resurrection. That's a clue for us. And we have a little play on words. You know, we have them justified just as if I'd never sinned. Sadducee, well, they didn't believe in the afterlife. They didn't believe in angels. They don't believe in the resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see. And uh, it's helpful. It's helpful to me. I could never forget it. Hopefully you'll never forget it. So when you read about Pharisees and you read about Sadducees, you can know here's why they were so messed up. They had the word of God. They read it. They memorized it. They quoted it, but they didn't believe it and they didn't obey it. So they come saying and asking teacher, Moses wrote that if a man's brother dies having a wife and he dies without children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. This, by the way, is in the law. It's Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10. And we get a beautiful picture of how this plays out if we study the book of Ruth. Many of you studied it with us, but you can just read it and you'll see it coming together. But here's how the law was written. If your brother marries a gal and he dies and they have no children, you are obligated to now marry her and produce a child, you name it after your deceased brother in order to keep his name alive in Israel. This was God's plan to keep every tribe flourishing and growing and every name alive. There are implications of it. I mean, most of us aren't that worried about who our brother might marry. In those days, you'd be a little more concerned, you see. You'd be like, I don't know. I don't like her that much. What difference does it make? Well, if you die, have you not read Deuteronomy 25? So it was important to know the word of God on practical levels. But anyway, they, they tell the story. There were seven brothers. First took a wife, died without children. Second took her as wife and he died childless. The third took her and in like manner, the seven also. Now I'm thinking this is made up. But uh, even if it were true, Here's how it all plays out. It says they left no children and died. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, and here's the irony. Remember, they don't believe in the resurrection. So they're saying in the resurrection, you know, <laughs> uh, whose wife will she be? Because all seven had her as wife. In their minds, this is just so convoluted, so complicated, so well, I just can't figure out how that could work, so it can't be. Now, Jesus tells them, and we don't have it recorded here. It's in Matthew's gospel. You are greatly mistaken, not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. And that's how most people get off. When, when somebody's in church and they end up caught up in a cult or drifting away and getting involved in some weirdness, it's either they don't know the scriptures, not really, or they don't realize the power of God. And, and in their case, it was both. 
They had them again. They read them. They memorized them. They quoted them, but they didn't really process them. They never really put them into practices. They were subtracting from the word of God, something God warns us never to do, not to add to it, not to subtract from it. And so they take what they like. They disregard the rest. I ask you, is that not what so many are doing today? And I hope not you, but if you find that it applies, well, then you need to repent today. You need to say, Lord, I know there are things that I've read that you've convicted me on, that you've told me to stop or to start or to do again, and I just haven't obeyed you. If that's you, you don't want to disregard any portion of Scripture. You want to be obedient to the whole thing. Well, the, the next issue then is Jesus answers them, verse 34, and says, The sons of this age marry. And are given in marriage. But those who were counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. Jesus just says, listen, marriage is for this age, for this dispensation. But there is going to be a resurrection. And when we are resurrected, well, he says, you can't die anymore, verse 36, for they are equal to the angels. He doesn't say we become angels. He says we become like the angels in what way? And that we can never die, that we will live on eternally. You see, the angels are eternal beings. And the reality is the real you that lives inside your body, your consciousness that you will still have when you die and are separated from your body, that you will live forever. And he's saying, we're not going to die again. We die once and then we live with him or we are separated forever from him. But we will be like the angels, equal to the angels and our sons of God being sons of the resurrection. Again and again, he uses their word resurrection saying, hey, there will be a resurrection in that age, in that dispensation. Our relationships will return to what they were originally. By the way, if you're unaware, Every person who's born again of the Spirit of God here is family. The Bible teaches that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And when two in the body of Christ get married, well, that marriage is for this life. This is actually so practical because some of you have, uh, you know, been widowed and you've remarried. There are people who've, who've had uh, two spouses die. I did a wedding not that long ago. Well, time flies, but, but it wasn't all that long ago for a dear friend. He'd lost his first wife. He lost his second wife. He, he remarried. And I was just blessed that the Lord gave him someone so he didn't have to live out those latter years alone. But it would be complicated even for him, not to mention all the people who, you know, find themselves in the same uh, situation because of divorce or, or those kinds of things. The issue is this, that it marriage is for this life but we will be brothers and sisters in Christ eternally. And that's what he's saying here. Hey, if we're counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection, we will neither marry, we won't be given in marriage. Our relationships are going to be different. There's something else though. He says we can't die anymore. I don't want to pass over it. Death is another part of this age, this dispensation. It will not be a part of the age to come. In Revelation 21, 4, a promise that many of us who've lost loved ones, we want to dwell on it and, and deal with it. it. says, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there shall be no more death, nor sorrow 
nor crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. That passed away, by the way, it's aorist tense in the Greek. It's beautiful. That means it's a once for all and forever done deal. That, that no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain for the former things. They're a part of the old dispensation, a part of the old age, a part of those things that pass away. Well, even Moses, he says, going back. Now, remember, these guys, they're into the first five books of Moses. They disregard the, the rest of the history and the prophets. So he goes to the part they say they believe in. Even Moses showed in the burning bush passage, the dead are raised when he called the Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living for all live to him. His point here is simple. Abe's alive. Isaac is alive. Jacob's alive. There is a resurrection of the just and the unjust. There will be a judgment of the just and the unjust. And as he shares these things, some of the scribes answered and said, teacher, you've spoken well. But after that, they dared not question him anymore. Are some of them starting to process it? Are they, they going from insincere to sincere? I, I certainly hope so. But basically, they're saying, hey, we're done with all of this. And he's saying, well, I've got one more thing for you. And I like this, too. He says to them in verse 41, how can they say that the Christ is the son of David? When David himself said in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, David calls him Lord. How then is he his son? It's not a trick question. It's not a riddle. It's actually explained so simply and clearly. By the way, it's important to know, again, he's quoting from Psalm this time, Psalm 110. It's another messianic psalm. And when it says, the Lord said to my Lord, if you were to read this, the father said to the son, because that's who we're talking about here. The Lord, the father said to my Lord, the son, sit at my right hand. Can we be sure about that? Of course. Where is Jesus right now? According to the scriptures, he's at the right hand of the father. What's he doing up there? He's interceding for us. Why? because we're still struggling down here and we have the accuser of the brethren accusing us day and night up there. And we have Jesus who's interceding, who's our advocate, our attorney, as it were, pleading our case and reminding the father he bled and died for those very sins we're being accused of. Well, how do you answer this? Why and how could the Lord say to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? It's easy. He's David's Lord because he created David. All things were made by him and for him. Colossians chapter one. He's David's son because the prophecy said that the Messiah would be a descendant. The word son means descendant here. That he would be a descendant of David. And Jesus is in the lineage of David. So it's really simple. And here's the crazy part. These guys were smart. And they had the scriptures and they could have put this all together, but they weren't because they didn't want to. It's not that they couldn't understand. It's they wouldn't understand. It's not that they couldn't see. They were closing their own eyes and stopping up their ears. They were refusing to process what was so clearly before them. 
Then in the hearing of all the people, verse 45, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes. What a tragic thing. These guys are rulers. They're leaders. They're, they're representatives. They're, they're, they're under shepherds. And he's saying, beware of them. Why? They desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues and the best places at feast. He's saying they're all about themselves, how people see them, what they experience, what they have, what they do. And in the midst of all of it, they devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. It would be like they're foreclosing. And they did on a poor widow. And while they're foreclosing, they're praying, oh, Lord, would you just take care of the widow? That was their responsibility. All they had to do was not foreclose. Or if they had to foreclose, let her stay in her house because she's a poor widow. The bottom line is Jesus looks at these guys and they are his vineyard. And, and instead of the, the fruit that he was looking for and, and well, he looked for justice, but it was oppression for righteousness. But behold, a cry for help. And then he says, these will receive greater condemnation. You know that God tells us in John 3, Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. This is the condemnation. The light has come into the world, but men love darkness more than the light. Neither would they come to the light lest their deeds be exposed as evil. There is not only condemnation for those who refuse God's offer of pardon and forgiveness, who refuse to believe in Jesus as many of these were but there is greater condemnation to the one who instead of making up his own religion, as some have, I'm going to build a bridge to God. I won't do bad stuff. I'll only do good stuff. God will judge me on my works or my intentions. And God says, yeah, I'll judge you on that, but that will lead to condemnation, you see. I need a righteousness that's acceptable to me and that can only come to you through my son, Jesus. Those who make up their religion will be condemned. But those who had the law and the temple and the feast and the festivals and a position and a responsibility and they refuse to see the truth, he says, greater condemnation. Now, I don't want to bum you out, but just in case you're here and you decide, well, I don't really believe all this. You're in a worse state than if you never came. And the reason is you do understand it at least. You can say, no, I don't understand anything you're saying. That's not true. I'm too simple to confuse you. I, I, I know that, that people who hear me get what I'm saying. You can say, I don't believe it. You can't say you don't understand it. And if there's anyone who would say that, let's talk after. And I will do my best to, to make it clearer if for some reason I've obscured what was so clear and simple here. But the issue is this. God holds us responsible for what we know. And to be condemned... You would think, could it get any worse? He says there's a greater condemnation. I don't want any condemnation. I want the righteousness and, and the rewards of a righteous life. And, and that only comes to me through Jesus by faith. And that's true for each and every one of you. There are still many in this day and age who employ the same types of tactics as the Pharisees did in today's study in an effort to trip us up create doubt and in some way have victory over us because they themselves cannot seem to have faith in what scripture tells them. They may be completely unaware that the enemy has them tied up in knots and their struggle is that their own intellect is doing battle with truth and their own pride won't allow them to take a simple step of faith. 
Now we love to read how easily Jesus handled these types of tests and left his detractors scratching their heads. But our struggle is that we are not Jesus and many times we'll find ourselves unprepared to respond to these tests. Now I'd have you to think about what the Apostle Paul told us in Romans 16 verse 17 where he says, Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. Then in verse 19 and 20 he says, I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil and the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. Don't feel that you've failed if you fall victim to one of these tests. Paul is telling us we should avoid them and focus on what is good. Be somewhat of an expert on what is good, living a life that demonstrates a conviction in your beliefs. Yet be simple concerning evil, naive of it if you will. The God of peace is your defense. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you, and until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.